So I've been a pastor now for 18 years. Last week was 18 years I've been a pastor at this church, which is pretty cool, right? 18 years. Over those 18 years, I've had the opportunity and honor to walk with people through ups and downs, which means I have been a part of many, many, many uh, funeral services and memorial services for people. I've sat on that front row. Many of you have experienced loved ones who have passed away and those funerals were held in here or in another room in our building. But every single time there's a funeral, I'll be sitting there on the front row, getting ready to come up and, and talk about this legacy and a life, but I hear what family members and friends say about the person who passed away. It's a very sobering thought because I go to so many funerals. Every single funeral I go to, I think, what will people say about me one day when it's my funeral? So I wanna ask you that question to start off today. What will people say about you when you die? At your funeral service, as family members and loved ones come up and they start reminiscing and talking about your life, what will their highlight reel be? What will they say about you? Another way of asking this question is, what do you want your legacy to be? Or you could say, how do you define success in life? Because however we define success in life will determine what they say about us one day. What you want people to say about you one day, think about it like this, is 100% tied to what you view as success today. What do you view as success? What is a successful leader in the context of this series, Take the Lead? We have to understand that there is a high calling to lead and a high calling also to the correct definition of success. So in this series, we're talking about the need. Last week, I opened up this series talking about the desperate need for real Christian leadership in our society. Christian leadership, yes, in the government. Christian leadership in the public schools. Christian leadership in businesses. Christian leadership on our teams. It does not mean that we are cramming religion down people's throats, but it means that we are walking, living, and leading as if Jesus was walking, living, and leading today. The world desperately needs every age group to rise up, to get in gear, and to say, today's the day, now's the time to take the lead. So the title of my sermon today is this, The Successful Leader. The Successful Leader. But what does it mean to truly be successful? And again, how you define this, how you define this word is linked to how people will define your life, how God defines your life. It all comes down to the right definition, learning how to lead and live, to lead toward the correct definition of success. So what is it? The definition is found in scripture and it comes from a story about the man we're gonna be looking at today. Each week in this series, we're gonna be looking at a different person in scripture, a different leader specifically, and analyzing their life or their lives and looking at our own to decide what kind of leader am I. The leader we're looking at today is King David. In the New Testament, in Acts 13, because the story of King David is actually in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is writing retrospectively about King David, and he says this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. This is talking about God. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, 
a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Every bit of the leader King David became in life came back to God looking at a young man in a pasture as he was tending sheep saying, that is a young person who is after my heart and he'll do what I ask him to do. Could it be that simple? Honestly, could it be that simple, the definition of success? Because let me tell you one thing, I have heard a whole lot of things that people have said about people at funerals, some amazing, and to be honest, some not. But if there is one thing, the bottom line of anything I would ever want said about me, and it is not because I'm a pastor, it is because I look at scripture and I see one definition of success. I want people to say, no matter what the memories are, I want them to stand up here and say, Dustin was a man after God's heart. I want my kids to say, my dad was a man after God's heart. My grandkids one day, in a long time from now, <laughs> I want them to say, my grandpa was a man after God's heart. That's success. And when that definition goes all into every area of our lives, including our leadership, everywhere we go, we are walking in the supernatural blessing of God. That's the truth. Obviously, people achieve things in life that aren't Christians, that aren't walking with God, but they do not have God's supernatural edge and blessing on their lives. Every time I've talked to someone in the past who wasn't a Christian, they're successful in life, or maybe they call themselves a Christian, but they're not all in, and they kind of look at how successful their lives are, and they go, I don't really know, I mean, what, what could God give me more than I have? And my response always internally, and if they give me an opening, I'll kindly respond something like, but could you imagine the supernatural edge on top of what you have already been blessed in this physical life with? Can you imagine being in alignment with God, being a man or woman after God's own heart, leaning into the supernatural edge, what could happen? God is after your godliness. And when he looks at you like he looked at David and says, that's a man or that's a woman, I can trust anything is possible. So can God trust you? Can he trust you? I wanna look at the story of King David and it goes all the way back really to the story of King Saul, which came before him. The people in Israel at this period of time in 1 Samuel 8 wanted a king. They were in the season of judges, judges after judges after judges. There were prophets and they were looking at all the other nations around the world and they were saying, we want a king like them. A king will protect us. They're, they're comparing to what everyone else has and they're saying, we want a king. And God had spoken in this time that it was not his perfect timing or his perfect will for them to have a king and the prophet Samuel actually told them, if you get a king now, bad things are going to happen. And they kept on and kept on. We want a king. Finally, finally, God gives them what they want and he gives them a king. But I want you to remember this side principle before we move on. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to give us what we want when it isn't what we need. One of the worst things that can ever happen to you is God allowing you to have what you want 
when it is not what you need. There's a business you want to start, but it's not what you need to start. There's another job you want, but it's not what you need. There's a promotion you want, but it's not what you need. There's a person you want, but they aren't who you need. And the only way we know if we need these things is if God is telling us we need these things. Because we as humans get want and need very confused. All we have to do is look at our five-year-olds. I need this, not five-year-olds. We can look at teenagers. I need that car. Eh. You want, not even teenagers. We look at 40-year-olds. Yes, I turned 40 last month. We get want and need confused. But some of the worst things that can happen is when we get what we want, when it's not what we need and what God wants for our lives. I want us to look at the outward description of King Saul, the, the king right before David that Israel wanted. And this is the description in 1 Samuel 9, one through two. It says, there was a Benjamite, a man standing whose name was Kish, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel. Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome, uh, so, uh, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Man, I mean, that, that, that's attractive, but I, obviously I just want us to focus on something. Every bit of this description was on the, out, on the outward. He's tall, he's a head taller than everyone else. This is a good looking dude. If the Bible takes the time to call you ugly or good looking, you're ugly. <laughs> Leah in the Old Testament. Or you're good looking, King Saul. I mean, if the Bible goes into those details, God's like, yeah, write that, it's bad, okay? So, but King Saul was good looking. He had everything that people wanted on the outside. Saul had potential as the king of Israel, but later on, which we'll look at in a few minutes, through disobedience and a growing heart posture issue with God, God removed his anointing from King Saul and decided it was time to anoint a new king in waiting. He didn't remove the kingship. He didn't even eliminate the man. What did he remove? The anointing. Through our own disobedience, which we'll get to in a minute, sometimes through our own decisions and our own lifestyles, God is still technically with us, but the anointing no longer is. So God shifts the anointing from Saul, which we'll go into in a second, why? And he shifts it to a young man named David. The prophet Samuel arrives in Bethlehem to anoint this young man. Most Bible commentators and theologians believe he was between 10 and 12 years old at this time. Young. His father and brothers had forgotten about him. Many of you know the story. He was out in the pasture. His own father knew the prophet was coming to anoint the next king of Israel, and he didn't even think to bring in that kid. It can't be him. It's the others. But this is the description of David. And think about it opposed to the description of Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, who was coming in to anoint David, look not on his, Eliab, David's older brother, appearance, or at the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. And by choosing David, what he was showing everyone was this, what you see is a little boy, that you have overlooked, but I'm looking at the heart 
of a lion and a heart of a king. God looks at the inward while we look at the outward. It was the, the same prophet Samuel who went to King Saul and said, that looks like a king, a head taller than everyone else. He was handsome and good looking. And, and, and Samuel did the exact same thing in Jesse's home. One commentator, I'm gonna read verse seven again, but the Lord said to Samuel, look not on his, the older brother's appearance or at the height of his stature. This is interesting, for I have rejected him. This is the exact same wording in Hebrew that God uses when he tells Samuel that he's rejected Saul. One commentator said this, that God was actually speaking to Samuel saying, Samuel, you're doing it again. You're going after the same type of king for the wrong reasons. I've rejected that type of king. I am looking for a king who is a king on the inside as much as he appears like he is one on the outside. So King Saul, today we're gonna compare and contrast King David and King Saul. What made David the leader that transcends time, basically? What makes David the leader we model leadership after today? Why was Jesus called the son of David and not the son of Saul? What happened and which one are you? Are you a David or are you a Saul? King Saul represents the way the world naturally thinks and acts. King David represents the counterintuitive nature of the way God wants us to think and act. There's the way of the world, which says this is the way, it's natural, and then there's the way of God that says most of how I'm calling you to act and live is going to be countercultural or counterintuitive to what you naturally want to do or you naturally hear in this world. It would end up taking 15 years from the time David was anointed king to actually become the king. So many stories are packed into this. There are sermon series and books upon books upon books that are written on the life of David. The life of David in the Bible is the most exhaustive, detailed account of any single human being's life in the entire Bible, even more so than Jesus. For some reason, we get the details of this man's life unlike no other. So comparing and contrasting King David and King Saul, I want us to look at which styles they are and I want you to analyze. It's gonna be so easy, guys. It's gonna be so easy to look at this when we go down the list for us to sit here and go, yep, my manager's a Saul. My last pastor, woo, you know, not this one, you know, my last pastor, my, my, my mother-in-law, my, you know, whatever it is, right? Don't do that. There's one person I want you to think of today, you. I want you to look up there and all of us are gonna go, well, I wanna be that guy. But what if you're this guy? What if? So let's compare and contrast. Number one is this, David lived by faith, Saul lived with fear. David, immediately after he's anointed king, goes back to the pastures to tend sheep. That's humbling in itself, a whole lesson there. But then there's a war that breaks out between the Israelites and the Philistines. And this is the, one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, the story of Goliath. David is a shepherd boy. He is running errands back and forth for his father, delivering food to his brothers. David was in the pasture. He was obedient, serving and then one day his dad says, all right, I want, you, I want you to take this food to your brothers on the battleground, on, on the sidelines of the battlefield. So David does, and as he's approaching, 
He hears the giant Goliath, who is over nine and a half feet tall, the greatest warrior on earth at the time. He is uh, just blaspheming God, Goliath is, and defying the God of Israel. And David walks up now, as most theologians believe, a 15 or 16-year-old young man. I mean, he is walking up with confidence, and he's saying, Who, what, where is everybody? Where's the king? Why are all of you over here afraid? Who's going to take on this guy? You're the army of Israel. You are God's army, and everyone is shaking in their boots. But here's the truth. David lived with confidence. Saul lived with insecurity. Because faith gives us confidence, fear will always lead to insecurity. Faith brings confidence because faith in God brings confidence. Faith brings confidence because our confidence doesn't start in ourselves and it doesn't end in ourselves. Fear brings insecurity because in fear, we no longer are considering the God factor in our situation. Every time I move into a true realm of being fearful, truly fearful, the number one core issue is this. Somehow my brain has convinced me to push out the God factor and think that this situation completely depends on me or circumstances I cannot control. So we start losing control and insecurity, fear, and anxiety. But God says, don't forget about the God factor. The true leaders who are faith-filled that change the world and change businesses and change the landscape of cities and towns and neighborhoods are the ones who can consciously and constantly remember the God factor in every situation where a giant appears. So much of the fuel for our future confidence with the giant we see is found in the past. What do I mean? In 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36, Saul is kind of inspired by David's confidence. So he brings him in. He's trying to put his armor on David. And he's trying to say, are you sure you want to do this? This is, I mean, you're making me feel a little awkward here. You know, all this stuff. 1 Samuel 17, 34 says, David replied to Saul, I am a shepherd for my father's sheep. Whenever a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. If it attacked me, I took hold of its mane, struck it, and killed it. I have killed lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has challenged the army of the living God. I, some of you have heard sermons on this before, maybe some of you haven't. But the key to this story, the key to being able to take on a Goliath is remembering that you have already handled lions and bears. God was with you when you overcame the lion. He was with you when you overcame the bear. Now, the bigger giant that is standing between you and what God has called you to do, like last week, developing the vision from God, the giant that's standing between where you are and the future that God has for you, why is this giant any different than the lion and the bear? Because when it was the bear, you had to trust God with full confidence. Whenever it was the lion in your story, you had to trust God with full confidence. And now that there's this new giant that seems bigger, he might be in the physical. Remember, God does not look at the outward. He looks at the heart. And when the heart of the true king showed up in the midst of the heart of evil that was defying God, there was only ever one outcome. There was only ever one outcome. And there's only one outcome for you. If you remain faith-filled, if you understand that this is God's fight 
and not mine, and only by his power can I move forward and take care of the giant. You win every time, every single time. Yes, I think we can clap to that. The challenge in front of you has a solution because it stands in the way of what God has already spoken. As a leader, what God has spoken to you over your life, confirmed by godly people, confirmed in scripture, what God has spoken over you, it's just a challenge right now in front of you. And it has a solution. But only with faith and confidence can we find it. The bottom line is this, and we'll go to number two. The bottom line is that great leaders are brave leaders. Simple, but you're only ever gonna be brave if you have clarity the clarity of knowing who God is in the midst of your situation. So many people go, well, they're, they're just so much more brave than I am. Maybe not. Maybe they just have a little bit in this season deeper understanding of God's role in the situation than you do. So instead of trying to be brave, step back and find God's role. Because his role is way bigger than you think it is and find bravery in him because when David went out to the giant, out to Goliath, he says, you come at me with a sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. David was saying, you come at me in the physical, but I come at you in the supernatural. And that's what God gives us and desires for us in our lives and how we operate every day in leadership. Number two is this, David was a servant leader, Saul was a selfish leader. David was a servant leader, Saul was a selfish leader. There's this um, image floating around on social media like for the last years, and it's like, you can throw it up here. It shows the difference between a boss and a leader. Do we have that? Yes, I think, yep, that one. So you guys seen this before on social media? I was trying to find the cooler one, but this is the one that originally came out like 18 years ago, and it's still there. So th this is such a good depiction. Though. Every time I see it, I stop, because I lead an organization. Every time I see this, I stop and go, which one am I, really? Because all of us go, oh, of course, I'm the, I'm the out front leader. I mean, I am pulling my weight, I am inspiring. Don't you know that? Like, people are inspired. That, I mean, we're not ever gonna look at this and go, yeah, you know what, I'm the guy sitting up there, cracking the whip in my office chair, yelling at people. But here's the truth, here's the truth. It is a fine line, and oftentimes, this is where most people, as they're growing in their leadership, become deceived because you can be a servant leader, right? Or you can be a selfish leader. We can have a boss mentality or we can have a leader mentality. Never in scripture, ever, does a godly leader, are we able to have a boss mentality. Every time one of the kings in the Old Testament, every time one of the disciples started rising up with a boss mentality, Jesus essentially, figuratively cracked the whip and said, uh-uh, the last shall be first. The way up is down. The way to have more is giving away. And these guys are like, well, I don't understand. And Jesus was telling them also, literally, I came to serve and not be served. He's teaching them in the kingdom of God to tap into that supernatural stream to where things are rocking and rolling in our lives as leaders. We have to understand that there is a God factor and the God factor is also tied to how we view ourselves and how other people view us. Are we a servant or are we selfish? Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Day is tomorrow, and obviously we celebrate this amazing life and man and leader. He said this, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great because greatness is determined by service. 
This is counterintuitive. It is. Because everything in our natural wiring says greatness is being on top. Greatness is about being domineering. Greatness is about putting people in their place. Greatness is about achievement, but it's not. Greatness is about serving, is about serving. Greatness is not about everything having a gravitational pull around you. Because the truth is this, every leader is building a culture. And you might be saying right now, saying right now, I'm not a leader, I'm not a leader on my team, I'm not a leader at work, I'm not a leader of any organization, I'm not a leader. But every person is a leader in training. And every person has people watching them, which means every person is a leader that has followers. People are watching, especially if we say we're Christians. And every leader is building a culture, and every leader wants loyalty. I've never met a leader that said, you know, I, I just, I'm trying to raise up disloyal people. Have you guys ever heard that? I, I, every leader wants loyalty. Every single leader wants people to follow them to, because they want to. I, I want loyalty, right? But from what I've found is this, that loyalty is 100% reciprocal. Loyalty is achieved when loyalty is given. And how do we give loyalty? By serving people and not just serving them when we feel like they deserve to be served. Serving them when we feel like they don't deserve to be served. And you're thinking, man, if I start doing this at work, I'm gonna get passed up at every pot. Do you believe the ways of God? I cannot tell you how many people in our church, a handful of people I know that are now at the top of their organizations that said the path here was not the path I expected. The path here was literally by the system of God implementing it where I could in every possible place in this organization as I started going up the quote unquote ladder at work. King Saul wanted to constantly create a gravitational pull back toward himself. I want you to think about this one scripture when he was king and how he treated the people and the people in the kingdom that followed him. 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 25 says, the Israelites were weak with hunger that day because Saul, with a solemn oath, gave an order. A curse be on anyone who eats any food today before I take revenge on my enemies. So nobody had eaten anything all day. They all came into a wooded area and found honey everywhere. I want you to read this verse again with me, the second part of 24. A curse, this is what he said, be on anyone who eats any food today before I take revenge on my enemies. I and my will stop people from wanting to follow you in 0.5 seconds. Well, my vision. No, it's our objective. Can I have my team over here? We've all seen those people, right? I can't stand it. I wanna correct people every time I see this happen somewhere. They'll be somewhere like, hey, can I get all my people over here? I need to talk to you right at a restaurant. Can I get all my waitresses and waiters over here? I'm like, they're not yours. They're human beings. They're human beings. Can I get all my people? I'm like, no, they're not your people. They're not your people. They are, we are all here and we are working toward an objective. Instead of saying that, hey, can I get everyone over here real quick? I, we need to talk as a team. It's a lot better way of saying it. I gotta stop because this is a rabbit trail. I'm gonna keep going out. Tell me to stop. Okay, I gotta come back. He's passionate about that stuff. So Saul's saying, my and I, and no one can eat. That's creating a kingdom of people that have to follow you. They no longer want to. David was the complete opposite, serving people up, down, everywhere. 
Honoring King Saul when he didn't have to. Honoring people laterally when he didn't have to. Honoring people beneath him, if you will, when he didn't have to. The bottom line is this. Servant leaders are purpose-focused, and selfish leaders are position-focused. Let that sink in for a second. What do I mean? People may show up for a position-focused leader, but they will only follow a purpose-focused leader. Especially if you're at work, people might show up and call you their boss, but they they may not be leaving work with their friends and family calling you their leader. And it's a call of God to move from the boss mentality to the leader mentality wherever we are. I'll never forget, I valet parked uh, for a job in college in Dallas. And we had a manager who was there, and, and I honestly, this guy was a trip. I mean, he was a King Saul to the max in my mind back then. Who knows? I was 18, so I probably was too, a little bit. But I remember showing up, and he had this boss mentality. I mean, you're, you know, when, you're about, when you work in service industry at all, you really feel, I mean, people treating you poor. I mean, it, it's real. And I was, we were already dealing with some of that. And this guy would just talk down to us. He would clap his hands and snap his fingers. And, and we would, I mean, it, it was one of those things where I was just like, oh, dear Lord, help me. You know, I, I, it was, I did not want to go. There was not one person in the 25 guys that he oversaw that ever, ever wanted to go to work for him. They were, we and they were only going to work for a paycheck. And I remember at 18 years old looking at this guy thinking, what a shame that all it would take is a little bit of work a little bit of service to win all of us over and you would probably triple or quadruple the income, the effort for this area. He probably could have risen up in the ranks, but what he did was he hated where he was. He hated where he was stationed. He didn't like the mall that they put him at. He deserved to have so much more. He didn't like it. So instead of saying, okay, I don't like it. I'm gonna take this. I'm not gonna take this for granted. I'm gonna take advantage of it. I'm still gonna serve. I'm not gonna be selfish. Instead of doing that, He wasted and squandered the entire time. And we do this so often if we're position-focused over purpose-focused. If selfish leaders aren't in their desired position, they view their current position as a prison. Servant leaders are people who can find a way to thrive, gather, and build no matter where they are. Here's my challenge to you. Never be a victim. No matter where you are, no matter who got the raise when you didn't, no matter what job you have now because you should have had that one, the feelings are real, we empathize where we can, but my challenge to you is this, don't play the victim. Look at where you are, thrive, build, and assemble, and watch how God blesses your life. Do you guys believe that today? Watch how God blesses your life. Number three is this, David faithfully followed God's word, Saul selectively followed God's word. This is huge. A very, very, very big deal when it comes to leadership and Christianity in general. Saul was given by a command by God, and this is what ultimately led to his demise as the king. He was given a command by God to eliminate an entire army, the Amalekites, but he kept the Amalekite king alive and took all of the best livestock, some of which he actually used the livestock to sacrifice as a means of worshiping God for allowing them to have victory over the Amalekites. But what happened was God said, I want them to be completely wiped out because I've given them warning after warning after warning. I even want their livestock gone 
because they keep rising up against my will and my plan. I want them gone. He keeps the king and the best livestock. Man, God is with us. He is awesome, but it was selective obedience. And we are so good at this. When I say we, I mean we are so good with a good heart sometimes still selectively obeying God's word. And God is watching. He does not demand perfection. But what he does expect is submission. I know we don't like that word because submission is like a wrestling or MMA term where you're like putting someone into submission. But submission is just the willingness to get under, sub, the mission of God. It's a posture before God of saying, you're God and I'm not. And after all of this, this is how God responds to King Saul through the prophet Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23, Samuel said, which does the Lord prefer to King Saul? Obedience or offerings and sacrifices? It is better to obey him than to sacrifice the best sheep to him. Rebellion against him is as bad as witchcraft and arrogance is as sinful as idolatry. Check out how strong this is. Because you rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king. That's heavy. God takes selective obedience very seriously. He does not demand perfection, but what you're gonna notice in this story, David was not perfect, but he does demand a posture that understands that he is God and I am not. And I cannot selectively obey God's word and then ask God's word to bless my actions. Can't do that. That's the literal definition of hypocrisy in scripture. I can't say, God, bless what I'm doing if I'm not doing what God has blessed me to do. It's a very, very big deal. Selective obedience, one commentator said, is a killer of destinies. But then I want us to listen to David's posture when it comes to God's word. Psalm 19, seven through 11 says, he's writing in the Psalms about, his, about God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives new strength. The commands of the Lord are trustworthy, giving wisdom to those who lack it. The laws of the Lord are right, and those who obey them are happy. The commands of the Lord are just and give understanding to the mind. Reverence for the Lord is good. I will continue forever. The judgments of the Lord are just. They are always fair. They are more desirable than the finest gold. They are sweeter than the purest honey. They give knowledge to me, your servant. I am rewarded for obeying them. David saying, I obey the Lord's commands. Although he sinned, his posture is obedience. He doesn't have arrogance before God. And he's saying, I'm blessed because I obey. Every time I read one of these Psalms, I have to ask myself that. Am I blessed because I'm obeying the way God wants me to obey his word? Do I look at the word of God as a treasure or do I not? There's a big difference when it comes to God being with us and God being with us. I said that correctly. Stay with, are you guys still awake? Are you guys with me? Maui, are you guys with me? Okay, good. I can't hear you, but I, I'm still jealous of you that you're there. But he can be with us and not with us. How do you know this? Because someone can be physically walking with you, but there's a big difference between, you know, if there's like, I remember when I was like a high school college, even, I'm, I'm just gonna admit it, even in manhood, sometimes you play out, you're, guys are weird. We play out these scenarios where you're like walking with your friends down the street and you picture this like big royal rumble happening. Do you guys ever do this? Am I the only weird one? And you're like, what would I do? My fight or flight? No guy thinks they're flight, but I probably would be. It would break out and be like, 
bump, you know, running. But I picture myself like, you know, and I picture my friends being next to me and then, you know, something happening or, you know, whatever it is. And like, what would I do if someone came, a gunman came in? I'm gonna, you know, whatever, right? And I'm picturing myself doing this and looking at my friends next to me who are with me, but then imagining which ones would say, I'm with you. You know what I mean? Because there's a difference between someone standing there. Like, I'm the guy who would stand there. You probably don't want me when that stuff happens. You would probably want someone else who would look at you and go, I'm with you. And I'd be like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But there's a difference. And that's the difference with anointing with God. God never leaves us nor forsakes us because we are his children. But anointing is the other kind of with. God was with Saul because he knew Saul. But when his anointing left Saul, he was no longer with Saul. This is very important as well when it comes to anointing because we have to understand that simple disobedience and disregard over and over and over again to God's word, he's still with you, but he may not be with you like he once was. But the good news is he can again. Number four is this. David owned his mistakes. Saul excused his mistakes. There's a very famous story of David sinning big time in scripture had an affair, story of David and Bathsheba. Tons of details I don't have time to go into. But one chapter later, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And when he's confronted, he's still trying to hide it, hide it. But when he's confronted and there was nothing left for him to do, it's like David woke up from a trance and then fell down to the ground and mourned and repented of his sin. Sin is like that, isn't it? Almost like a trance. And you need someone to wake you up out of the trance to look at what is happening and to where you have this opportunity to truly repent. Saul did not. That day when Saul was confronted by the prophet Samuel, Saul started making excuses about everything. Well, I was gonna do this with the livestock. I wasn't gonna do this. I, I, I thought it would be a good idea to have, keep the king alive. We, we could use him. I thought all of these things, and he's making excuse after excuse after excuse, but here's David's response that he later wrote about in Psalm 51 after he was confronted. He said this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's two quick ways I want us to take this point where David didn't excuse it and Saul did. What happens is this, we have sin in our lives and we're majorly unrepented sin. Our posture is not in repentance or submission to God and we are still wanting to do something for a God that he is no longer with us. He's with you, but not with you. Repentance rebuilds what was lost. David in that season was the king without God, but when he repents, the relationship and anointing is restored. It's an amazing picture of repentance, but also that's on a larger sin level in our lives, but even on a smaller micro level in our workplaces, with our families, with other employees. One of the fastest ways to gain respect is to genuinely, genuinely, and authentically admit when you make a mistake at work, with your kids, 
with your spouse and say, that's on me. Not the kind of admittance where you go, that's on me. I know I'm ultimately responsible for their mistakes. It's on me. That's not, that's still blaming someone. I promise you, again, it's counterintuitive, and we know this. The faster, have you guys ever had a manager, boss, leader, actually come to you and say, that was my fault. I should have trusted you on that one. We made a wrong decision. You did not leave the room going, I told him, what an idiot. She, I told her, she, you know, you don't do that. You leave the room when someone's genuine and go, that's someone I would like to follow. Because we all deep down want to follow someone who's real and who can own their mistakes and not excuse them and blame them away. Are you a David or are you a Saul? Lastly, number five, David followed God's heart. Saul followed his own heart. The worst advice in human history is this statement, follow your heart. I have heard so many well-meaning, even Christian people say that, and every time I hear that, I just wanna like claw my eyes out because I just go, no! You are literally sending them over the edge of destruction when you tell someone to follow their heart because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. If you're a Christian, I'm begging you, never say that again. So what we're saying is this, follow the way of the world. Because the way of the world says, follow, the number one thing you can follow is whatever you're feeling right now. And that's what you're telling someone when you say follow your heart. Never does God say follow your heart. He says follow my heart. Why was David successful? Why was David chosen? because he was a man after whose heart? God's heart. He didn't wanna follow his own heart, but Saul did. Saul wanted achievement, he wanted position. And ultimately, there was a day where Saul, his life was ended, his kingship was ended, his line, his lineage was ended, and David did become king. David became king and had a reign unlike any other. Victory after victory established Jerusalem to really what it is today, all because he was a man that followed God's heart. So today in this series, week two, take the lead, whether you're here or watching in Maui today, are you a David or are you a Saul? Where you want to go in life, we talked last week with Nehemiah, that wall you're wanting to build, the vision that God has given you, what you're wanting to do and where you're wanting to go will come back to today Deciding and analyzing, am I a David or a Saul? Because leadership in the order of King Saul comes to an end. But leadership according to the order of King David will last forever. What are you building? And how long do you want it to last? I want us to read this scripture again, Acts 13, 22, about David. And it says, again, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. I love this second part. He will do everything I want him to do. What's interesting about this is, did he do everything God wanted him to do if he had an affair? No, he wasn't perfect. But what God was saying is, his, the posture of his heart, his will, his mind, his submissive mindset toward me, I know. He'll do everything I ask him to do. And even when he doesn't, in the midst of failure, in that moment, 
he'll do what I ask him to do. He'll repent and get back on track. With every head bowed and every eye closed today, I'm gonna end a little bit differently. And I want you to just remove distractions, just for a moment. And I wanna ask you a question based on this last scripture. The scripture says, he will do everything I want him to do. I'm gonna ask you two questions. What is it that God wants you to do? What's your next step in leadership? Is it something in your family? Something at work? Something on a team? Something at school? Something you knew you should have already started, done? What is your next step in leadership? And then here's the other one. Are you willing to do it? I just want you to sit just for a moment in your own thoughts. Is there something he's asking you to do? What is it? And are you willing to do it?